Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, in New York City, and today I'm announcing that I quit poker. The reason why is because I watched episode 12 of the new season of High Stakes Poker, and I absolutely cannot believe what I saw. Uh, I know this is a, a tournament podcast and not a cash game podcast, but something happened at the end of episode 12 of the new season of High Stakes Poker exclusively on PokerGo that I absolutely cannot believe. Uh, Many of you listening to this will have heard about this hand, but for those who haven't, let me quickly tell you why I've decided to try a new career. Uh, The hand begins with the greatest player of all time, Phil Hellmuth, opening from early position with a Queen-10 offsuit, a... Fish, I'm just going to use the word fish. I I usually don't like to use that word, but uh, this guy, there's no other way to describe him. His name is Bored. He's bad at the game. He calls on the button with deuces. And then a man that many people know as the supreme leader. Now for reasons that I fully understand, Mr. Doug Polk calls from the big blind with 10-7 offsuit. So... Three players see a flop, and there's about 4,000 in the middle. And it comes jack, nine, eight, with two spades. The spades aren't important. What is important is that on this flop, one player has the nuts, and that's Phil Helmuth, and one player has the second nuts, and that's Doug Polk. Both of those guys check over to uh, Mr. Board, and he bets 2,000 into 4,000. And Polk, loving life with the uh, second nuts and a straight, uh, decides to make it 7,000. And Phil Helmuth, who has 92,000 more, shoves the whole thing for like almost 100,000 in chips. Uh, board gets out of there. He had pocket deuces on <laughs> Jack nine, eight. So yeah, he's not going to continue. And then Doug, Doug Polk, ladies and gentlemen, Douglas throws his hand away. He flopped a straight with 10, seven and raise folded check raise folded on the flop. And, and it's one of the most ridiculous and beautiful poker plays I've ever watched. I've been losing sleep. How will I ever be good enough to beat the best at this game? There will not come a day in my lifetime when I'm capable of folding that hand, especially against Phil Helmuth, who definitely does not make a habit of playing Queen-10 from early position in the first place. So... Uh, and I block that hand with my 10. So I, I just, I, I'm flabbergasted, as many of you are as well. Now, after the fact, you can see Doug saying and tweeting, uh, you know, way after the fact of the episode finally aired, uh, you could see him commenting that when Phil Helmuth was trying to tell him that he could have blockers, like Phil does make a lot of mistakes. If you, if you have a chance to watch this hand, uh, please go dig it up and find it. It's unbelievable. This guy... Folded 10-7 on Jack-9-8. 
I cannot believe it. I'm like really, really beside myself here. But, you know, the case for folding is that Phil doesn't really shove ever without the nuts. And he definitely doesn't have 10-7. <laughs> he definitely doesn't play that hand. I mean, maybe once in a blue moon, Phil will mix it up to that degree. But for him, stepping out is like opening at a seven-handed table, queen-10 in second position. He's a tight, cautious, uh, survival-first kind of player, even when he's in a cash game. Uh, yeah, so uh, somehow Doug figures it out. There's a lot of table talk. Phil Helmuth trying to tell him, I have, I could, well, he asks him a great question. He says, what could you have? If you don't have queen-10, what could you have? And instead of just keeping quiet, Helmuth starts saying, well, I could have blockers. <laughs> and like, Doug says that was what, what really convinced him to fold because Phil Helmuth doesn't think in terms of blockers. He's not a mathematical player. By his own admission, he is a feel player. So when you're trying to talk someone into calling and you yourself are at a loss for what to say and you kind of try to tell us you have blockers, it's, uh, yeah, okay. But still, in Doug's shoes, there's no way I could get away from 10-7. If Phil has me beat, he has me beat. I mean, come on. So unbelievable. So let me know. Did you guys watch it? I don't know if everybody out there has seen it. I don't know how many of you are Poker Go subscribers, but you know what? It's like 10 bucks a month. They don't pay me to say it. I don't really work for them right now, so it's not like I'm trying to get a kickback. I don't have a promo code. I'm not on the network at this moment. But look, 10 bucks a month and, you know, they got high stakes poker with AJ and Gabe. So I'm just giddy. I can't wait every week for it to come out. And then last week's episode did not disappoint. There's another episode that came out uh, this week on Wednesday that I have not yet watched. But I doubt anything could possibly happen on that episode that will top the just shockation. <laughs> yeah, I made up a word. The shockation of watching a great player make a great play against uh, the self-proclaimed best of all time. Uh, what else is going on? I had a very, very uh, lively discussion with a number of people, most notably Mr. Andrew Brokus, who is a TPE coach and a good friend of mine and someone that I respect very much. I tweeted an article that someone wrote about comedy and whether it's okay to laugh at something that's politically incorrect, like if the comedian is punching down, or uh, should we always be kind of using our moral compass in judging whether or not we think something is funny. And, you know, my take as a comedian, I don't really like having a lot of restrictions on comedians, but I understand why people think that we should be sensitive to other people's feelings, um, you know, marginalized groups, stuff like that. So I get it. I totally understand why some people feel that comedians should be responsible and make sure that you are punching up and never punching down. And, and you know, the conversation got very, very lively and may very well lead to another appearance for me on the Thinking Poker podcast that Andrew hosts because I think we both have a lot of strong feelings about it. And Andrew is a qualified and bona fide 
comedy fan. I mean, stand-up comedy is one of his favorite things. I think that may be partly why he's friends with me. I think that he likes that I'm a comedian. Um, you know, it's just the same way that I think he's really cool and an amazing poker genius. I think that he appreciates my comedy, and I think that uh, he likes comedians in general. He's kind of a comedy connoisseur, if you will. So I like hearing what Andrew thinks about comedy and what's going on in the comedy world and how the role that comedy is supposed to play in society, right? So that's really what this conversation is about. So uh, yeah, it was pretty lively. So that's been going on and taking up a lot of my time on Twitter lately and helping distract me from all of the insanity between Vanessa Cade and Gigi Poker, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, But I will say that companies are in business to make money. So the way companies make decisions is they decide based on profitability. So like, for example, when I get burglarized at Bally's, <laughs> which feels like a lifetime ago now, but many of you remember the story uh, that I returned to a hotel room that had a lot of stuff missing from it, and their options were to do the right thing and take responsibility, or at least some responsibility, for the fact that my room was able to be entered by a perpetrator, and that would have been the morally correct thing to do. And the financially correct thing to do was the one that they did based purely on profit margins. They decided to tell me to uh, go screw myself. And so the uh, decision there was purely a financial one. Even if somebody somewhere within the walls of Bally's Las Vegas had the superheroic, is that a word? Superheroic ability to see me as a human being, that person's voice would have been hushed out by everyone who was there in the name of profits and trying to appease the shareholders. So uh, I think that in GG Poker's case, they see their actions as what's best for the bottom line. And that really is what companies think about. It's been proven time and time again It's all about the Benjamins. So if you don't like them, you don't like what they did, you don't have to play on their site. Many of our listeners are not eligible to play on their site anyway, since they don't operate within these United States. But uh, yeah, that's, that's as far as I'm going to go about that. It is an ugly situation and one that I frankly don't want to talk about anymore. So let's move on to this week's strategy Segment, I have two hands for you guys. I played on ACR last week, and they they have something. They have some kind of name for it. I think it's called the Sunday Brawl, but if you are an ACR shill, please uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the Sunday Brawl is the tournament that you can play all week to try to qualify for day two. On Sunday, it's a $20 buy-in with a $2 entry fee, they get thousands of players. Uh, yeah, it's a big, big prize pool for a $20 buy-in. So that's what I played, and I made it to day two, which was not easy. I think only 20% of the field qualified for day two. So uh, I was happy to come back and log in 
on Sunday, even though I didn't have very many chips. So let's see. Okay, yeah, we, the average stack was 200,000 and we only had about 80,000, maybe about 150 players away from the money. So yeah, when you come back for day two, you're, you're pretty close to the money, all things considered. Uh, they get a, a couple thousand entries for this thing because like I said, they have day ones all week and you're allowed to do it more than once. There's like a progressive bounty element to it. It's a whole thing, all right? Uh, yeah, but at this point, a lot of the bounties at my table are in the 10 to $20 range. So we're not really at the point where trying to collect the progressive bounties is more important than trying to cash in the tournament or finish high. That point does come. There is a point where that happens, but we're not quite there yet. Actually, nowhere near there yet. So, uh, yeah, so we have 80,000. The blinds are 1,600 and 3,200. There's a 415 ante, uh, you know, just shenanigans. Um, our M is right around 10, and we have about 25 big blinds in the stack. So now you're in this tournament. You're not in the money yet. Uh, you're the shortest stack at your table. Uh, we're in the bottom 40, I think, of all the players left in, in the tournament. We're, we're probably in the bottom 40 or 50 players. So we're just not doing well by any measure, except for the fact that we made day two and most people didn't. Uh, you know, with an M of 10, we're kind of handcuffed how many hands we can play and what's fair and like how soon after getting involved in a pot, we will feel committed to that pot. So uh, obviously this isn't the kind of stack that's the most fun to play, but 25 big blinds, it's not hopeless. Maybe we can spin it up and try to cash in this thing. So three folds to us at an eight-handed table, and we are in the hijack holding ace nine of hearts. Ace of hearts, nine of hearts. Uh, you know, as the short stack of the table, about 400 players or so left, and about 250 get paid. Uh, our table's pretty good, but it is on the loose aggressive side. So... I guess question number one, do we play ace nine in this situation? Uh, I think it's actually not mandatory. You don't have to open ace nine of hearts, ace nine suited from the hijack in this situation. Uh, but I will say that if you do open with this hand, you should be willing to push and pray if someone three bets. If we put in 6,400 of our 80,000 with ace nine of hearts, we should not be doing so planning to fold to a three bet unless that three bet comes from a pretty tight and predictable opponent. I mean, we're the short stack at the table. It's not exactly bubble time, but it's been a loose aggressive table. And so we should expect ace nine to be doing just fine against a lot of our opponents. Three betting range, especially from the button, uh, the button in this hand is uh, particularly loose aggressive. So all that for you might be a reason to fold. You don't wanna have to get all in, all 25 bigs with a hand that's this marginal. But for me, I just think that the math is in our favor when we do, so that's gotta be the plan. I think the worst plan is to raise, planning to fold to a three bet. Now, if I raise and it gets three bet and four bet, now all of a sudden I think Ace-9 of hearts is a pretty clear fold, 
But the three bet that I'm expecting the most comes from the button, and he's been really active. So uh, I'm not folding ace nine when he decides to put pressure on me. So we make it 6,400. I, I did decide to enter this pot. I opened for the minimum 6,400. And the cutoff, who only recently sat down at our table, and I don't really have many hands on him, just calls. Uh, I did see him play one other hand, and he played it uh, aggressively. So if I have to take a guess about how this fellow plays, I would say that he uh, errs on the side of bluffing too much and being a little aggressive. But that is just a guess because I haven't really spent many hands with this player at all. Uh, so he's on our immediate left, and I'm surprised that he calls, and he's only got 150000 behind. Uh, so everybody else folds, and now we're going to see a flop from out of position versus this new opponent at our table. Not the ideal situation by any stretch. There is now 21000 in the pot, and our stack is the effective stack at 73.5. Our SPR is also less than ideal. It's three and a half. So now I could have prevented that by raising a little bigger, especially when I wasn't planning to fold to any type of pressure pre-flop. So I could have made it a little bit bigger. And then if I were to get one call, I have that SPR below three that we usually want with a hand that when it makes something, that something is most likely to be a top pair type of hand. You want to have an SPR below three in those situations. But I really didn't believe that I would get called in exactly one spot and that one spot would not be the big blind. Like if you look at this situation, the big blind was getting something like seven to one on a call and chose to fold his hand. So uh, that was a pretty big surprise right there. Now, if he would have called, I, yeah, I would have two opponents, but I'd also have an SPR of more like two and a half, which would be way better. Anyway, uh, the flop comes ace of clubs, king of spades, queen of diamonds. So ace, king, queen, rainbow, and we have the ace, nine of hearts. So there are no hearts on this board. We have top pair with a nine kicker and an opponent who flatted from the worst relative position pre-flop. So what to do, what to do? I think you can go ahead and just continuation bet here if you want. I think that's totally fine. Um, it does get a little bit hairy when you get raised because so much of that raising range is going to be hands that have us absolutely crushed like King, Queen, Jack-10, especially Jack-10 suited. So you don't want to get raised if you bet. Uh, I decided to go for the check here. I want to see if my opponent wants to take a stab at this pot. I, I'm not really in the business of folding. I mean, I suppose if this guy puts incredible pressure on me on all three streets, I might be able to find a fold. But, you know, I'm already, as I mentioned, so short to begin with. I've already put in two big blinds. And now if I check and call, I'm going to have put in, I only started with 25 big blinds. So if he makes a reasonable bet, here on the flop, it's going to be like three blinds. So then I will have basically put in 20% of my stack already with top pair. So it's pretty hard to fold this strong of a hand under those conditions. So I'm checking, not planning to give up, but my hand strength is basically that of a bluff catcher. And since I have opponent that I'm somewhat suspicious may be a bluffer, I decide to check and see what he wants to do. So he does put in 10,500 into 21,000, which is half the pot. 
and I call rather cheerfully. Of course, sometimes I'll be behind. This is a bet he should make with king-queen or jack-10. I don't know that he would just flat pre-flop with ace-queen. Some players do. But against my stack, I think doing so is a pretty big mistake. He should be trying to pressure me, especially if he knows that I would be willing to get all in with him <laughs> with the ace-nine of hearts. Any ace that has me dominated should theoretically be uh, three-betting, hoping that I do shove. Anyway, he bets and we just call. So we have a bluff catcher and we call hoping that he's bluffing. Now the pot is 42,000 and we have 63,000 behind. The turn is the deuce of spades. So our board is now ace of clubs, king of spades, queen of diamonds, deuce of spades. And we again check. And at that point, our opponent also checks. So now I think we can pretty much rule out Jack-10 and King-Queen. I think that both of those hands would bet again. And so for that reason, I think that our hand is almost always going to be best when he checks behind on the turn. The reason is simple. He's not going to be able to bust us and collect our $12 progressive bounty unless he bets the turn. Otherwise, the river bet would just be a, a pretty ridiculous size to try to get called by a hand like the one we have. So when he's got us crushed, he should be betting all three streets, especially because it's a progressive knockout bounty situation. So that's why I was very happy to see him check behind on the turn. And so now there's still 42,000 in the pot, still 63,000 in my stack. And the river is the six of clubs for a final board of ace, king, queen, deuce, six, no flush. So should we lead out here, try to get a little value for our hand? You know, I think that's fine, but I think that it's a little challenging trying to get called by worse. Like, yeah, maybe if we bet small enough, we might get a curious call from a hand like King Jack, second pair type hands. Uh, but I think you're better off here just checking and hoping that he has the bottom of his range, like maybe some kind of 10-9 suited that had a gut shot, decided to take a stab at it on the flop, gave up, took the free card on the turn, and now bricked off on the river. And he can't show down 10-9 and win like ever, so we might be able to sneak uh, a, a little extra bluff out of him. I think that this opponent would have hands like that in his range and would probably play them that way since it's hard to put me on the ace as I've played every street since the preflop very passively. So we do check and I'm looking to induce here. He bets 32,000 into the 42,000 pot, which is also roughly half my stack. Uh, this is not the bet we were hoping to see. I hate when they bet half my stack. It does feel like they're trying to get action. Leave me with enough chips that I feel like I can still survive for a while when they have me beat. But it's just really hard to put him on anything because he checked behind on the turn. And I think that he may even be value betting worse. For example, a hand like ace five that I actually have out kicked. So I decide to throw in the call and my opponent turns over pocket fours, which may seem odd, but yeah, it's basically the same hand strength as 10-9. He's hardly ever going to win this pot if he doesn't bluff. So firing on the river was virtually his only chance of winning the pot. And yeah, he may have felt that he had gotten pwned, but 
Yeah, just look at if he if he bets Fourth Street, I probably would have to fold on the river. Even though I started off this whole hand by saying our stack is too short to get committed and and get away, uh, it, it would be hard. It would be hard to make the call if he put maximum pressure with the three barrel bluff. Now I remember uh, when we had David Tuckman on. By the way, we should get Tuck back on on this podcast. I love that guy, and I haven't talked to him in a long time. Uh, yeah, when we had him on, we talked about how the uh, bet check bet is usually not a bluffing line. Uh, here we have an opponent who did implement that line, and it was a bluff. I really doubt that he was value betting fours on the end. So that was that hand, and then a few other things went our way. And later on in the same tournament, about 50 players away from the money. So we're still not in the money, guys. Uh, but we're getting close to bubble time. There's a lot of tables left, and we're almost at that cash. Now, when you cash in this tournament, it's a $20 buy-in. I think the min cash is like $36 or something like that. So no one's really sweating it out like they do at the main event or anything. But still, many players look at tournaments as the first goal is to cash in the tournament, and the second goal is to try to make some money. So uh, I'm aware of that, and I try to spot who those players are. At this stage of the tournament, the average stack is 250000 and we have 200000 So things are going well. Uh, now, these figures are estimates and probably a little bit off, but I'm just trying to give you guys a feel for where we were and how we were doing. Uh, the blinds were 2300 and 4600 with a 600 ante. So our M was 17 at that point. Uh, it's about 43, 44 big blinds, something like that. So uh, in this hand, it folds to the cutoff, uh, who's a reasonable player with 160,000 behind. And he says 9,200. I should mention, this is not the same table we were at before. So it's a new group of opponents and a different vibe at the table. So this player min raises from the cutoff and it folds to us in the big blind holding ace six offsuit, ace of hearts, six of spades. And I think it's pretty uncontroversial here for us to call. I guess you could mix in a few three bets into your defending range here, but I don't know. I just like to just play these hands uh, from out of position. He's supposed to have more aces than I am in his range. So I'm usually hoping to flop an ace and let my opponent represent that ace because he's the pre-flop raiser. He should have more aces than we do. It's nice for us to have one occasionally. So that's why we call here. And with 25500 in the pot, the flop comes ace of spades, king of clubs, tray of diamonds. So ace, king, tray, hero holding, ace, six offsuit. We check always. We always check heads up when we are not the pre-flop raiser. And our opponent makes a tiny bet, 49.75 into 25,500. All right, so this is one of the smallest bets you'll ever see. Uh, it's barely larger than the minimum bet, and there's 25,000 chips in the middle. So our opponent here is betting less than 20% of the pot. And you can make a case for doing that with a lot of your value range because 
he will have a lot of aces in his range uh, over the long run. And it's hard to get called on an ace, king, tray, rainbow board. You know, how many draws do I have? Uh, how many aces do I have? How many kings do I have? So this kind of bet is a good bet from a good player where he's basically trying to squeeze a little value, maybe from a curious pocket fives I might call sometimes. I don't know. I'm not really sure what can call this little bet, except for hands like the one I have, ace rag. So I do call, and we're going to the turn. Well, actually, before we go to that turn, let's talk about the other side of the coin. Uh, He's also giving himself a great price to take it down, and he doesn't have to win this pot very often when he's bluffing. So if he opened with a hand like ace, uh, let's say eight, seven of hearts, right? Or 10, eight of hearts. Like a lot of players open a lot of hands from the cutoff position. So when those hands miss a flop that do better for his range than they do for my range, there's no reason for him to bet much more than this because when I don't have anything on this board, I should often be folding even for this tiny little bet that he makes here. So uh, when I call, I'm not sure how much my opponent can read into the fact that I called because he bets so small, but he knows I don't have absolutely nothing because I would fold pretty much all my nothing to this tiny flop bet. And to me, this is part of hand reading, guys. I, I think that a big part of hand reading is trying to figure out what it looks like you have not just figuring out what your opponent has. So when I call, I don't think that he can say, oh, well, Clayton must have an ace. I mean, dude, you only bet 49.75. I can have a lot of hands, but I don't have nothing because I would have folded almost certainly. All right, 35.5 in the middle, and the turn comes the five of clubs. We check again, and our opponent, who we do have covered, let's remember, this time he bets 17.5 into 35.5. So he is right around a half pot bet here on the turn. And what should we do? I think it's another call. It doesn't make sense to fold yet. Uh, The half pot bet gives us three to one on a call. We have a pair of aces. Will that pair of aces be good 25% of the time? Certainly, unfortunately, it's not the end of the hand. We still have plenty of chips and there's still another street to play. But I think that it's just too nitty to fold. I know we might be outkicked. He could have a set. We could be beat, right? But I definitely don't think it's folding time just yet. So we make the call. I think there's not really a case to be made for raising or folding. Uh, If you raise, you can't really get called by worse. So the only benefit really is protection. But it's not exactly a draw-heavy board. Ace King Trey Five. So yeah, I don't I don't like raising here. And I already told you why I don't like folding. So we do call. And now with seventy thousand in the pot and our opponent has one hundred twenty-five thousand effective stack. We have him covered. We have one seventy. The river comes the nine of diamonds for a final board of ace king tray five nine. Hero with a six offsuit. There's no flush. We check one last time, and our opponent bets 54,500 into the 70,000 pot. Now, this opponent is a good 
reasonable, realistic kind of player. He's not uh, overly aggressive. He's not some kind of bluffing machine. On the other hand, we won't have a lot of aces in our hand overall. A lot of our ace-x holdings would have been inclined to three-bet, especially against a player with this type of starting stack that our opponent has at the beginning of this hand, we'd want to be trying to build the pot pre-flop so that we can either get it all in pre-flop. Like if we have ace queen, ace king, like the big aces, we're going to want to we're going to want to build the pot now. So just naturally, based on combinatorics, our hand is underrepped. And we have top pair with no kicker and opponent has blasted off three times. So you can see why I picked these two hands because they're both one pair aces and kind of similar in a way. Uh, but yeah, I really didn't know what to do here. I was very stuck. I decided to fold just because uh, in the time in the last 12 months that I've been playing on ACR, I don't think I've seen very many three barrel bluffs. I mean, yeah, maybe I folded to all of them, so I never saw them. <laughs> but actually, I uh, I'm, I have called before, but not with this big river bet. I mean, this is probably two pair or better, maybe 80% of the time. So for that reason, I chose to fold my hand. I don't know. I've been thinking about this one ever since, though, because if I call and win, I'm going to have an above average stack about 45 players away from the money and then I could have been in a great position to actually try to make some noise in this tournament. Folding the winner felt like a smaller mistake than making a bad call here just because of the ICM considerations, approaching the money and just how unlikely it is that anyone would triple barrel after I already called twice. But the thing that kept sticking in my craw and that still is there was that tiny flop bet. So does it really even count as a triple barrel when he barely even bet the flop? So I don't know. What do you guys think? Is this a uh, nitty fold by me? Am I a nit all of a sudden? <laughs> Something no one has ever called me before except for Jonathan Little once and he was wrong. Uh, <laughs> let me know what you guys think. You can send me a message on Twitter. I prefer you do it publicly, but if you're a shy person and you'd rather send me private messages, I've been getting quite a few of those lately. My DMs are open. But yeah, if you guys can, tweet so that we can all read and learn together at Clayton Comic on Twitter. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please rate and review, subscribe, and all that other good stuff that we tell you each and every time. And so, for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.